0: Well, good evening. My name's Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, as Austin said, we're starting our sermon series in James, which will go throughout the summer, and um, both liberal scholars and critical scholars agree that the book of James was written by a guy named James, and he was he was James, which is actually saying something given the state of modern scholarship. James was probably the brother of Jesus. There are a lot of Jameses in the early church, but... Um, this, this James sounds a lot like Jesus. There's more parallels between James' language and, the, and the, the words of Jesus in the Gospels than any other writer. Um, it's also a book of wisdom. It's kind of compared to the Proverbs of the Old Testament. It was my favorite book right when I became a believer, uh, I think because of that very practical nature of it. It's less theological in one sense than a lot of the other books. And this man, James... The brother of Jesus, um, he was the, actually the first leader of the church. So it wasn't Peter. Um, people sometimes say that Peter was the first leader of the church. It wasn't Peter. It was James, the brother of Jesus. And like his brother, James was a very holy man. He was called James the Just. Even by the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem who didn't believe in, in Jesus as the Messiah, they acknowledged he was a very holy man. He was called Camel Kneed James because his knees were so worn down through prayer. They looked like a camel's knees. So he was called Camel Kneed James, and he emphasizes prayer throughout his letter. And this is a very early letter. It could have been the first letter uh, written after the resurrection. Perhaps within 15 years of the resurrection, this was written. Uh, and it was written, obviously, after a time when James came to believe that his older brother was God, now imagine coming to believe that your older brother is God, or any brother that you have is God. That's, that, that's going to take a lot. But James was apparently struck by the resurrection so strongly that he actually came to acknowledge that this person he grew up with, that he was raised with, that he fought with, was actually God incarnate, the God Yahweh who he worshipped. So James wrote this letter to uh, this group of Christians in exile. Uh, so if he, he was their pastor in Jerusalem, uh, or at least he was the pastor of the pastors. He was kind of the bishop, if you will. And so once the early church was scattered and persecuted, then James was now pastoring them in exile. Um, not, he was not there, obviously, but he was pastoring them through writing this letter. So th- think of this as a pastor sitting down with his people and talking to them. That's what this letter is. Um, he, he says to the twelve tribes... In the dispersion, and 12 tribes there is just a way of saying to the Hebrew Christians of all different tribes who are now dispersed across the Roman world. Uh, It says in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 1, This is the the book of Acts is a, a, a book about the earliest history of the church. And it says in Acts 8, 1, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So there was a persecution of the early church at some point, and these Jewish believers scattered all over the place and were living like refugees, like what Ali was talking about. They are living as refugees in these little towns and cities outside of Jerusalem. And James is immediately addressing them uh, right where they're living in their loss. Uh, He addresses them in their pain and suffering of exile. And that's why he begins by talking about trials. Blessed is the man... Who remains steadfast under trial, verse 12. That's kind of the theme of this very first section of the letter. It's one of the big themes of the entire letter. Is the, the way that we think about our trials, our suffering. Because the people he was writing to were suffering. Were suffering greatly. And So I want to talk about trials today. And this, this idea, that's this crazy idea of, of being able to find blessedness. And somehow find joy in the worst parts of your life. That's what James is offering as a possibility in this letter. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So he's saying there's a real possibility that you could have joy in verse 2, that you could have joy in your trials. And trial just means um, suffering, like the kind of suffering they're going through. Uh, Paul the Apostle and his friend Silas were thrown in jail after being beaten, and it says that they were singing songs. They were praising God. And um, that's that's an image to kind of hold in your mind, as James is talking about the kind of joy that a person could possibly have in the midst of trials. So that's the first point I want to talk about, there can be joy in trials. And the second point I want to talk about is that clearly he's saying that the source of the joy... And the only possible source of the joy is actually is God, God himself. That when everything else is shaken, that is what subsists and remains. And so he talks about God as, verse 5, the one who is generous without any reproach. That if you know that God, then you can have joy in trials. That God is the one who, verse 12, promises a crown of life. That's a metaphor a crown for uh, just something regal with dignity and exaltation, where you can feel like your royalty. It's a promise. And then verse 17, he calls God the father of lights, And I think that means the sun and the moon and the stars. And he, he calls them the father of, of, the, uh, of the lights. So he's the one who authored them and gave birth to them, in a sense, and not only the father of lights, but the source of every gift. And I I said it earlier, some people accuse James of not having much theology to him. There is theology there. Clearly, that's theology. He has a view of God. It's just not explicit like it is in Paul and sometimes Peter and John. So, number one, uh, joy and suffering. And then after that, the source of joy, which is this amazing God that that James learned about through his brother, Jesus. So, first of all, the the trials. Uh, Notice that it is of various kinds. That's really important. I'm so glad he put that various kinds in there, because I know that if you're like me, I think to myself, well, my trials uh, may be difficult for me, but they're certainly not of biblical proportion. They're not, I'm not being thrown into jail. I'm not being martyred. I'm not being beaten. And so my trials don't really count scripturally. They wouldn't fall under the heading of trials of various kinds. Um, I think of my problems as almost entirely first world problems and therefore not really uh, meeting the muster of what a biblical trial would look like. But that's completely wrong. If you're thinking like me and you discount your trials, please stop doing that because he says of various kinds. And, and your trials, whatever they are, no matter how small they seem, they absolutely count in the eyes of God. And they are part of God wanting to, to bring us to a different place, to a higher place. These trials. Um, these people that James is writing to uh, they're not being martyred for the most part probably none of them have been killed for their faith but they are being displaced like again like the refugees that Ali was talking about one reason to spend time with refugees is to understand what their life would be like these um, these strangers in a strange land acts again the book of Acts chapter 11 verse 19 it says they were scattered scattered like seed these uh, early Christians were just Thrown out there as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, that island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch up north. So these, these Christians are hundreds of miles from their home. They grew up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's very, a very cosmopolitan urban city. It's like a New Yorker being displaced to the Midwest or something like that, where they are, they are really at loose ends. I mean, it's, it's beyond that, of course. This is, a, this is more than just moving from one part of the country to another. This is culture shock. The kind of... Um, if you've ever experienced culture shock, I haven't, but I looked it up. And there's a lot of anxiety apparently involved, a lot of confusion about who you are, a lot of dislocation even in your identity. I can imagine as a refugee there would be a lot of loneliness. You, you wouldn't know the language. You couldn't connect with people just out on the street. Uh, you would uh, miss your neighborhood and your house. You'd probably be really homesick, even if your family was with you. Imagine the loss of, of status we knew a guy who was an engineer in Baghdad. He came here, he couldn't even get a job, you know, uh, making pizzas. So imagine just that sense of depression and the shame that you would be ostracized for your views. That were, they were once so normal, and now they're so weird. So that's what these early Christians are living. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, one thing that doesn't mean, it does not mean to pretend that your trial is not a trial. That's not what he's saying. He does not mean that you should go around talking as if all these things that are terrible that are happening to you are really not bad at all. That you can see the silver lining and everything. That's not really the way that he's meaning this. He's saying that somehow you can count it as joy. That doesn't mean they are joy. Counting is like um, an interpretive word. You can somehow see this happening. You can feel terrible pain. You can feel the pain of someone you love so much who has failed at something, and and really feel that, and somehow you can reckon that or count that as something that is joyous, as something very deep, beyond happiness. Not happiness, but joy. And uh, he says, basically, uh, you need to to look at your hardship from a higher perspective. You need to get up above it, you know, somehow, like when when you're mountain climbing, you get up higher into the mountains, and you look back down, you see stuff you could never have seen when you were down there, in the valley. That's what he's saying. You need to count this stuff as joy. I was talking to a friend on Thursday a week ago, and we were both describing how uh, we were be- we were feeling more uh, cynical and jaded in our work uh, than than we had been, you know, as far back as we could remember. Just feeling very cynical, jaded about life, and uh, we were both describing how um, you know that the trajectory of our life was tilting downwards. It felt like. There's the, he, he quoted Lou Holtz, who was the coach of Notre Dame. and Lou Holtz famously said, if you're not growing, you're dying. A lot of businesses use that. Uh, a lot of churches use that. If you're not growing, you're dying. It's a terrible idea. But uh, the idea is that if there's any downturn at all, then you're, you're beginning to die. And so um, just thinking about all that, uh, we were lamenting you know, the state of our souls. And thankfully, I was thinking about James a lot. I was thinking about this passage a lot. And I just said, I, "I have noticed, in spite of all that we're saying, which is all true, um, it's not good where we are. You know, we're, we're not a good place mentally. But I have noticed in my life, that paradoxically, it's oftentimes where I'm in the most darkness, I feel the most sinful, almost even. I would definitely say weak, if not sinful. And yet in those places when I look back on it, I see deep. Spade work. That's where a lot of deep work is being done by God. A great Puritan, Samuel Rutherford, said that it it was in the cellars of affliction that the great king keeps his best wine. In the cellars of affliction, the great king keeps his best wine. And to use the language of James, that is where he makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 4. Perfect and complete. And lacking in nothing in those trials, even the place you might feel like is the biggest problem in your character. That's where he might be tearing down your self-reliance, uh, your arrogance, your sense of your own greatness. But it says in verse five that you've got to ask this. This insight, the counting it of joy, that kind of insight, it is not natural. It's not automatic. It's not true that joys make everyone better people. That is not true. Uh, It is not true that all suffering makes everyone happier. That's not true. A lot of suffering makes people bitter and hard and only able to focus on themselves. And all they can ever talk about is themselves because they've suffered so much. And they never counted it as joy. It takes wisdom to see this stuff in the right way. And so he prays in verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Uh, ask God for wisdom. Wisdom is going up into that mountain like I talked about and seeing the big picture wisdom is what protects you from short term thinking I noticed um, a title of a book uh, this week that was called um, playing the long game I like that phrase playing the long game quote uh, the subtitle how to save the west from short termism that's a horrible word um, I think it was made up in the corporate world, short-termism. But it's a terrible world, but it's, it's, it's a great concept. Here's how it's defined. Short-termism is an excessive focus on short-term results at the expense of long-term interests. This would be the New Jersey Nets uh, and the trades that they made to get all these all-stars on their team and send away all this young talent. That's short-termism. Thinking in, in, in like a matter of years or or even months instead of decades or centuries, playing the long game, trusting the process and where it could lead you. Tim Keller says that, um, he's a pastor in New York, he says short-termism is what makes us so unable to suffer well as Americans. He says Western society is probably the worst in history for helping its members to get ready for suffering because we Westerners believe that this life is basically all there is. We may not say that, but we live that way. And so if you lose your love here or your happiness here, there is no consolation. You've lost all love. You've lost all happiness. It's gone because there isn't anything but this world. And without wisdom, you just get stuck in these little places, these little cul-de-sacs of life. Where you're kind of, you can't, you don't know how to get out of there. Without wisdom, your mind gets down in these little tiny short-term Uh, 10-year, you know, one-year, one-month kind of thinking. You're not thinking about eternity. You're not thinking about uh, centuries. You're not thinking about millennia. Your life's tiny. James says you become like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the winds. That means when things are going well, you're pretty happy. When things are going poorly in your life, you're sad. Just like like the waves on a sea, you're moved this way and that by every little wind of change. He says you're unstable in all your ways, verse 8. Which means that your circumstances drive you in everything you do. And there's no ballast to keep the ship stable. You're unstable in all your ways. I was late to a meeting the other day. And um, and Siri uh, led me into a cul-de-sac. I don't know if you've ever had Siri lead you to the to a bridge that's out or something like that. But in this case, uh, she led me... uh, Someone said, don't ever call Siri a she. It's an it. It it led me into a cul-de-sac in an apartment complex. And I was late. And uh, I was kind of frozen by it. I didn't know what to do with that. I was really angry. Uh, I was angry at the cul-de-sac for being there and at uh, Siri for leading me there. And I was like a wave of the sea. I mean, I was very happy. A minute earlier, I was furious after getting in that cul-de-sac and um, then I tapped on you know brilliantly I tapped on the maps app and it pulls up and you see your car as a blinking dot and you see where you are in the bigger picture and you see that I'm in this stupid apartment complex and I need to be over here which is right next door and the backyard backs up the apartment complex but it shows you where you are it gives you a much bigger picture of your life and that's what wisdom does. You're no longer like a wave of the sea, driven this way and that. Wisdom is seeing your life from a bird's eye point of view, which is very hard to do when you're in trial. When you're in trial, your, your focus is just immediate, immediate, right now, next, next, next. And when you're in trials, oftentimes, uh, you're going to think that your trials are meaningless. There's just a natural uh, progression of thought that when you're in the midst of suffering, all suffering seems like it's the accidental byproduct of a cold and merciless and impersonal universe. It's just a series of unfortunate events that lead to nothing. You're, you're gonna always think that way about your trials without wisdom. It's like a blown layup. You know, it's, it's that feeling uh, where you, know, you have this, or a free throw that rims out, or like if you got a rebound and you didn't know the score, And you just dribble the ball out to half court. It's like, that's what suffering feels like. Just random nonsense, chaos. And yet, um, with wisdom, you see that the trials are very, very purposeful. The exact opposite of all those things. They are are a testing. I love that word in verse 3. The testing of your faith. That's a word from metallurgy. Which I know nothing about. So I had to read about metallurgy. And apparently, uh, they... They used to make swords. Not many people make swords anymore, but they used to use swords as weapons. Um, I guess you probably knew that. And to make a sword, you have to have a great uh, swordsmith. They called them swordsmiths. And you would um, you would put the sword in this really really hot furnace, and you would uh, you would hammer it and make it sharp down in that furnace. And then at some point, the swordsmith would raise it up out of the out of the furnace. And it would be this glittering, sharp, hard blade that was unbreakable in combat. And it was perfectly purified metal. And the word for that was, uh, it was you, you tested the metal. And so James is taking that word, and he's plugging that into trials. And he's saying that when you're in the midst of trials, you're, in the fir- you're a sword in the furnace. And, and God is making something beautiful of you. And he's, he's ready to pull you up out of that furnace and make you um, beautified, uh, make you pure, make you dangerous to evil and strong like, like a great uh, massive sword. So when you are in a trial, um, like even if your computer is down um, or it's locked you out or you don't know. Someone told me they didn't, they've forgotten their password to something. And they were, it locked them out for like an entire day. Um, if you're in a situation like that, it can feel like overwhelming. That can stay with you. But if you think about that as a testing, as God, you know, striking another blow on a sword that's in a furnace, it can help you to think differently about that computer crashing. Or if your child is screaming at 3 a.m., which I remember, you know, I remember those days. Uh, I didn't ever get up. My wife got up, but I was woken up by the child. <laughs> I did get up sometimes, uh, or if, and if you're a husband, then you need to get up. Um, or if you're um, if your friend uh, if your friend is is rejecting you, or you're failing at something, um, this is where you've got to think about these things through the eyes of wisdom and counting at joy because you know you're in a fire that is producing steadfastness. Uh, verse three that this testing what is the testing doing? It's it's producing a steadfastness. That word means, like, battle-tested. Um, I thought, of, I, because I just finished The Lord of the Rings, I thought of the hobbits when they left the Shire and then when they came back to the Shire. When they came back to the Shire, they were very dangerous hobbits, uh, even to very strong warriors. And so steadfast just means you're experienced, you're courageous, you're savvy, you're shrewd. It's like Luke Skywalker going from uh, The New Hope, where he was this kind of you know, embarrassing teenager who couldn't really act, and he was petulant, and uh, whiny, you didn't really like him in the New Hope. But then when he becomes the Return of the Jedi and he's in black and he's like swinging that lifesaver and uh, doesn't he kill uh, Jabba the Hutt or something like that? He's just this amazingly powerful, um, grizzled veteran. Uh, actually, Princess Leia kills Jabba the Hutt, but still, he, he helped her to get <laughs> to that point. There's Star Wars people out there who always critique me after I make Star Wars mistakes. <laughs> when my children were little, um, we, we would take them to the beach and I, I loved, uh, to my wife's chagrin sometimes, I would love to take them down. I don't know how small they were, but I would take them down to the ocean. And uh, I would dangle their feet in the waves. And the bigger the waves, the more I liked to dangle their feet in the waves. And my mother-in-law also didn't like this. And um, they would be crying and you know, kicking and screaming. And I would be laughing and smiling. <laughs> because they were blinded by short-term thinking. And uh, whereas I had asked for wisdom, I was seeing the, the big picture, the, the long game. And uh, what they saw in front of them was this loud, cold, wet, giant thing they couldn't figure out. But see, I saw 10 years in the future, 12, 15, 20 years, I saw them you know, laughing and splashing and surfing in those waves. And that's the way God sees you when he puts you in these trials that you think... You're about to die. And God says, no, I know this is going to make you a beautiful, tested, purified, steadfast thing. That's point one. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. No doubt all of us are in the midst of a trial right now. So that's applicable to everyone here. That's point one. point two is that the source of the joy is ultimately God. I mean, I've been talking about, Jedis and swords and the ocean and these are analogies but none of that compares to what's really going on which is, which is that your, your, your union with God, um, it's, it's your union with God where the joy can come from, where you're beginning to actually live as a human being that is um, meshing with and interacting with and engaging with the creator and that's really, that's the source of the joy. It's that uh, it's the presence of divinity within you, around you. Uh, he who gives generously without a reproach. Imagine union with generosity himself. Uh, when, you have, when you have that, then joy comes. Or again, verse 12, the, the, prom- the promiser of the crown of life. This amazing uh, king who can give you a crown and promises you a crown. Union with that. Is what brings joy, or the Father of Lights, verse seventeen. Again, I love just in terms of astronomy. Uh, if you love uh, cosmology and, and looking at pictures of stars and galaxies, this is the Father of those things, the one who made those things. And James says that you can have union with the one who thought up the Crab Nebula, that or black holes. This is the Father of the spheres in the heavens. And so the ultimate goal of the trials is not really looking into yourself and thinking, I'm a great sword, or I've become a powerful Jedi. The the whole point is to be full, unself-aware, full of the presence of God in your life. Um, And the way James puts this is uh, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 4. When we're in that kind of union with God, we're perfect and complete and lacking in in nothing. Now that sounds very intimidating. And uh, to reformed uh, Presbyterian Protestants, we don't like that kind of language. When we hear perfect, we think no one's perfect. We're all sinful. Uh, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's true. Um, so when you hear that you've got to be perfect and complete, or that God is making you perfect, um, Jesus actually said, be ye perfect as I am perfect. But uh, what it's talking about there uh, is not being sinless. It's not being flawless. That that idea of perfection is like um, like a strawberry that has become perfectly ripe and absolutely delicious in its perfected state, in its its goal. It's uh, sometimes philosophers call it the telos, the end result of what you're supposed to be. Where a, a flower that is uh, blooming and is is fully bloomed and absolutely the peak of health, that's what James would say. That's perfect. When you're when you're firing on all cylinders, and you're, you're maximized, like aged wine. That's what James would say is perfect. It's the, it's the end result of what something's supposed to be, the goal of what someone is, is supposed to be. It's, it's what you're made to be. And what is the end goal of being a human being? Uh, what is the chief end of human life? Well, the Westminster Confession says uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and so when James says uh, that you are going to become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that's what he's saying: is you're going to be a God glorifying, God enjoying type of person, where you've, you're you're the ripe strawberry, you're the aged wine, um, you're the blooming flower. You have reached this state that God intends for all people to come to: the state of perfection and maturity. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4.13, and this is more corporate. I love the way he puts this Um, in Ephesians 4.13. He's writing to this church in Ephesus, not a great church. They have all sorts of problems, but he says, here's the goal, Ephesian church, and I would say Salem, Presbyterian as well, that you you are to be a people moving rhythmically and easily with each other. This is from the message, you can probably tell. The message translation, that's, that's not the literal Greek. Uh, people moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful, in response to God, fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ. So it's not just perfected individuals in the room that he's talking about, but it's y'all. You know, it's, a, it's a community thing. It's y'all, when, you're, when y'all are, and I'm including myself in this, when we are all um, moving rhythmically and easily, efficiently and gracefully, that's what he would say. That's maturity. That's perfection. That's what trials are moving you toward. Uh, that being just enveloped by the presence of God as a community. And notice in verse 9 how he applies this to the lowly brother, what he calls the lowly brother, This could obviously be a sister as well. And lowly is probably not the word we would use today. Disenfranchised, marginalized, um, someone who has not been, not privileged, not been given resources, under-resourced. That's what we would call this person, uh, the the lowly brother is what James calls him in verse 9. Now remember, these are Jewish refugees. They've lost everything. Uh, They're being belittled. They've lost a lot of confidence in their life. And James says... Let the lowly person boast in his exaltation because he is so united with God who promises the crown of life that no matter how little you have or how small you feel or how low you think you are on the totem pole, you know what Austin was saying earlier about people coming in here, comparing themselves to one another, thinking they're so far below that, everybody else is happy, I hate my life, suicidal thoughts. James is saying let the lowly brother let the weakest, most disappointed among you boast because you are unit, uh, united with God. Uh, you're exalted. You're exalted by God. And actually, sometimes you can see the, um, the exaltation of a person's union with God even more when they're, when they're in a lowly place than when they're in a place where they're nicely dressed or they have a lot of money or they're driving a nice car or they're very fashionable, or they're very hip, uh, they uh, have a nice haircut or whatever, it's usually when they're in a state of lowliness that you see the, ex- the true exaltation. One of my favorite portrayals of a lowly person boasting in their exaltation is um, a woman named Sarah Smith of Golders Green. Now, that's actually a fictional character, and uh, she is in this book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And um, the person who meets her in the story refers to her as one of the great ones. This is one of the great ones. And yet she's a completely ordinary woman. Uh, it says she's someone you'll never have heard of. She's from Golders Green, which is a suburb of London, which is extremely ordinary, like very blah. If somebody you know moved to Golders Green, they'd be like, I don't know, I, I hate to pick on Clemens or Kernersville or Louisville, but, you know, it's a suburb, okay? So it's, it's just more ordinary, I guess you would say. So she's not a cool, hip urbanite. She, um, she's from Golders Green, and yet uh, she's described as one of the great ones. And she comes dancing in, uh, and all these amazing, like, uh, animals are around her, birds, dogs, cats, their children around her. They're, they're like, honoring her. Um, they're singing to her. It says, her, her courtesy and her joy were like a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. Her inmost spirit shone through her clothes. She's so full of God that anything that comes into her orbit is just made alive. Sarah Smith of Golders Green. This completely overlooked, neglected, ignored, single woman Uh, on her street in Golders Green, but all the children in the neighborhood, the stray cats, the dogs, the birds, they found life in her because she was so exalted. Uh, This is what he's talking about with perfection and maturity. I think James would call Sarah Smith a first fruits. Verse 18, a first fruits of all creatures, that she's a person, she's a woman, who is brought forth by the word of truth. First fruits, if if you've ever um, lived in any kind of agricultural society, you would know that the first fruits are when the grapes first come on the vine and the the farmer picks them off the vine dresser uh, and holds in his hands a group group of grapes that are the very first ones. And, And however hard and firm and sweet and juicy they are, that tells you what the rest of them will be like. And so James is saying that people like Sarah Smith of Golders Green or you or I um, we are these first fruits, signaling the glory of all the rest that's going to come in. Of all the rest of creation, humans are like this first fruits of all the creatures that are going to be made perfect, and that these um, we humans are these new kinds of human beings who are made uh, joyous through our suffering. We're exalted through our suffering, um, and and we're not brought forth by physical conception. Um, we are brought forth by the word of truth. We're not born out of a mother. We're born through the gospel. The word of truth means the gospel. And so these creatures, like Sarah Smith, um, are brought forth by um, this amazing good news that uh, the gospel is simply that God loves sinners, that God loves people who are, who are imperfect, incomplete, who have all sorts of problems, um, that, that God promises even sinners the crown of life, that The father of lights has no variation. There's no shadow due to change. When you believe in the gospel that God loves you as you are, that you're much worse than you think you are and that God loves you way more than you think you are at the same exact time, when you believe that, then you're brought forth by the word of truth. And you become a new creature, the first fruits of the new creation. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was Thursday night, uh, the night after I had that conversation with that, that guy. Um, it was a bad night. Uh, I was feeling awful. And uh, I, I felt very guilty and tawdry and unworthy. Not because of that conversation, because of other things. And uh, it, was, it was very, very late. And I, and I woke up, it was about 1 a.m., just feeling horrible. I'm sure you've all had that happen, where um, there's so much anxiety. You, you, you take whatever sin that was, and you just multiply it times a million, and you just see it going worse and worse. All that catastrophizing and worst-case scenario stuff happens. So I was there, and I was praying to God. And I said, God, you know, please forgive me. Um, please, at some point in the next, I'll give you a day or two, restore our intimacy. I know that it takes you a long time to get over these things. And I know that uh, you're going to need a lot of time to cool off. Maybe tomorrow, or maybe the—maybe by the end of the week, you'll be okay with me, and I can feel okay in your presence you know that kind of prayer where you think that, uh, that God needs uh, all sorts of time to forgive you like the way you are with other people? And you kind of force them to beg before you're going to forgive them? Well, immediately, at the very moment I prayed that, uh, the presence of God was completely overwhelming. At the, at the very moment that I prayed that, God did not um, hold back his affection for me in the least bit. There was sheer love and affirmation that was palpable. It was emotional. Uh, it was actually affecting my body that it was so strong. And I actually had to hold up my hands and I just said, I do not deserve this at all. I don't know why you're doing this right now, but I do not deserve this. And then I realized, well, I'm in that state all the time. That's always the way I am. always in a place where I don't deserve the love of God. And, and, and God didn't say anything to me. I didn't hear a voice or see a vision, but... But he could have said to me at that point do you not remember my son that i am he who gives generously to all without reproach and he could have said i am he who promised you the crown of life many years ago and i will deliver on that promise no matter what you do between then and now and i am the father of lights i made the galaxies and i am the source of every gift and i don't change the way you change my love for you is 100% at every single moment. It doesn't get turned down to 90 or 70. 100% all the time. Complete, sheer love. And that's what God says to us in this meal. Um, this meal, I just love the fact that the Bible says whenever we celebrate the meal, you're supposed to start by saying on the night that he was betrayed. That on the night that, that the human race uh, did most damage to God, really about all the damage we could do, Uh, we did nothing less than when God came, we crucified him. And on the night that we betrayed him and abandoned God and crucified God, when Jesus came, who we believe was God in the flesh, um, we betrayed him. But on that very night we were betraying him. See, the amazing thing is when we were betraying him, he is setting in motion the plan uh, that will clear our name, that will rid us of all guilt. And so whenever we do this thing, um, we're repeating, this is the word of truth. This is the word of truth in form of bread and wine. And like Austin said, we, we love for people to come here who, who don't believe in these things. Um, we want people to be here who are just exploring the faith. There's no pressure at all to take this. Nobody's going to be looking out there and seeing who's taking this and who's not. And even if they did, they wouldn't judge anyone anyway. Because anyone that comes up here is not saying that we're superior in any way. It's actually us saying, um, anyone who comes up here is saying, uh, I'm, a, I'm a total failure. I need God's grace. There's no superiority in this meal. There's no judgment in this meal. But if you're not ready to take it, then don't feel pressure to take it. Um, but you do need to realize that it's a meal of complete grace. It's a meal of grace. So on the night that he was betrayed, on that night of all nights, uh, God incarnate took bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. So whenever we eat the bread, and whenever we drink from the cup,